Welcome to the Veterinary Career Services Podcast, a show for veterinarians, veterinary specialists, and hospital management. Join industry expert and president of VCS, Laura Anderson, as she interviews seasoned and accomplished veterinarians that share their paths and provide insights that can help professionals achieve their career goals. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Carrie Foss, who is an assistant professor of neurology and neurosurgery at the University of Illinois College of Veterinary Medicine. After earning her DVM from the University of Illinois College of Veterinary Medicine, she completed both a residency in veterinary neurology and neurosurgery and a master's program in veterinary clinical sciences at The Ohio State University. She has served on the ACBIM Neurology Specialty Exam Rating Committee and also chaired this committee. Presently, she is on the ACBIM Forum Program Neurology Subcommittee. Dr. Foss's clinical interests include diagnostic imaging and the treatment of epilepsy and spinal cord injury. She also enjoys teaching veterinary students and find it incredibly rewarding to see students progress in their knowledge and skill set over the course of their education. Dr. Foss, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Yes, thank you for having me. I do want to crack a little joke. I'm glad that you put the V in front of the Ohio State because some listeners might get a little upset if you didn't. Myself included Yay, since good. I went there. <laughs> Well, I'm excited. It's great to talk with specialists about their career paths and any lessons and insights they learned along the way. Looking over your career, as I thought about it, it's interesting because after you finished your residency, you went into private practice for four years uh, before returning to academia. And it was at that point, was it, were you considering both private practice and academia or did you know you thought you wanted to go into private practice? When I was in my residency, I was whole time, I'm going to finish my residency and I'm going to go into private practice. And, you know, there was no rhyme or reason to it. I think I just in a residency training program. And again, I was in academia and I enjoyed my time there. I enjoyed interacting with the students as a resident. And I think from the standpoint of residents, they actually have a lot of face time with the fourth year, the clinical fourth year students. So I really, really did enjoy that. But then you are also kind of on the front end of seeing the patients. So I, you know, it just made sense. I think I can still be in private practice where I have all my own patients. Um, you know, it's very fast paced. I'm going to see a lot of a lot of cases on a daily basis, some very interesting cases. And so that was kind of just the, the route I, I wanted to go down. And it just happened conveniently that uh, the private practice was still in Ohio because uh, I really loved Columbus, Ohio as well. I loved my time there. So I was excited to be able to stay there for a couple more years. That's a busy hospital. So I know you saw a lot of patients. Yeah, they are. They are quite busy. It's a great hospital. We're talking about MedVet Medical and Cancer Centers for Pets. It is. Um, I work with some brilliant, brilliant clinicians uh, alongside of myself, and I enjoyed my time there. And and the decision to leave was long thought out. It was not an easy one to leave my colleagues, to leave my clients. But I just, I missed the timing with the students. Um, I missed having that time to teach them. There was also a little bit of a, a personal draw to come back to academia. Uh, as you said, I, I went to that school here at the University of Illinois because I am from Illinois, from a small town, Morris, Illinois, about 
two hours north of Champaign-Urbana. So when I saw the opportunity to get a little bit closer to home, and then also, how cool is it? I'm, I'm teaching and I'm an assistant professor at my alma mater. So not only is it I'm in academia and I get to teach, but I get to teach future veterinarians where I went to school. So I like to joke with the students, well, not joke with the students all the time, but you know, I just tell them, Hey, I went to school here. You can go, I call it the, the wall of fame where they have all the previous graduating classes. You can go find me on the wall of fame. But I said, what I'm also telling you why I went here is look at what opportunities lie ahead of you in veterinary medicine. So I said, you're looking at someone who I walked these halls. I sat in the same seats you did. I went through the exact same thing. So you guys can do it. Right. So in private practice, what was it that you loved about private practice? I mean, there was a lot. I, I think the efficiency, um, you know, the support staff that we had there had been there significantly longer than I had even been. So they kind of, once they figured out what I liked with my patients, it was just like this very well-oiled machine. Um, so they could usually predict what I was going to want to do for that patient and ha- get it going. and then you know, being faculty, I still get to see patients and and clients, but again, usually in academia, the residents are the forefront of that. So, you know, in private practice, I didn't have an in-between person. So they were also my, my patients. So I see the residents here bonding with the clients. Sometimes it makes me a little sad because I'm like, oh gosh, I remember that from my private practice days of having that really close bond with the clients, um, like just that connection that you have. So I, I do... I really, really loved that uh, when I was in private practice. So how many surgeries would you do in a typical day in private practice? Oh, gosh, they were, they were busy. <laughs> I, wasn't, yes, I wasn't doing I know. a lot of surgery when I was in private practice uh, because when I started, the neurology service was initially just a medical neurology service. I so see. it was okay. they were trying to kind of figure out how to transition over to incorporating surgery into the neurology service and if we had you know, timing allowing, but even if we took in a surgical candidate and we transferred to the surgery service, we probably saw two to three surgical cases a day. So busy, busy, busy. And how does that compare to academia? They kind of ebb and flow. Um, I think with academia as well as, and it varies across institutions, depending on what the setup is here at Illinois, we do share the on-call for the emergency surgeries with our surgery service. And the the reason for that is that the surgical residents also have to have a certain amount of exposure to neurosurgery. And so that's why we kind of split 50-50. So their residents also get exposure to neurosurgery, but then our residents also have time to do that. Um, That being said, we probably even weeks that we're not on call, you know, we have cases still coming in through our service that are as a scheduled appointment, then we work them up and they have a surgical disease. And so we will take them to surgery. So we probably do one to two surgeries a week as well. Maybe more. Next week, next week we're doing uh removing a brain tumor. So Oh wow, <laughs> that's a big deal. Yeah. How many brain brain surgeries do you see a, a year? I'd say three to four. We are hoping an influx, this is my shameless plug right now, is our oncologist, Dr. Tim Fan, is doing a clinical trial, um, kind of a multi-institutional clinical trial on um, treatment of brain meningiomas in dogs. 
And so with Tim being here, Illinois is one of the, the designated institutions for this clinical trial. So I have a suspicion that our caseload might have an uptick with that ongoing. Interesting. Okay. So how many people will be scrubbed in on a surgery like that? Typically, it's myself and my colleague, the other neurologist, and then our third-year resident will be scrubbed in as well. And then we do have our fourth-year clinical students involved also. And shifting from brain surgeries to spinal surgeries, more along the lines of when we have patients that, you know, hit by a car, have some kind of trauma where they've got a vertebral fracture, so a broken spine. Um, those, a lot of times, what I really like about academia is the collaborative um, opportunities in that, you know, a lot of times in those cases, if we're trying to stabilize a spine, there is, I can't recall the last time that we did not have a neurosurgeon and an orthopedic surgeon simultaneously scrubbed in. So tell me this, if, if you can just describe what your on-call responsibilities were at MedVet, I mean, obviously, I know it was shared. Probably, if, if you were just medicine, then probably, did you have on call while you were there? Yeah, we, we took call uh, because it was just so the ER clinicians could run cases by us if they had questions about management, you know, if a dog comes in with seizures or, or various things about the best way to manage those cases uh, to get them stabilized or, or what we would like to do with them overnight while they were either going to transfer or. Uh, to get them started on treatment and, and send the dog home. So we still, I mean, neuro is something that it's can be intimidating to a lot of folks. And so, you know, I think we tend to get, even here <laughs> at uh, in academia, we tend to be probably the services specialties that tend to get quite a few phone calls, um, you know, internally from our colleagues in the same hospital, but then externally from our referral partners as well. I see. I see. So you're not really called into the hospital that often. Again, it, it kind of depends. Uh, you know, I think a lot of the, the meta, it depends on the patient's level of stability. You know, if we're really worried that a patient's going downhill fast and it needs a workup right away, then we will come in and, and get that workup done. You know, if it seems pretty stable, you know, it comes in and it's had a couple seizures, but the dog's otherwise doing stable, then they probably can just manage it overnight. Or from our perspective is if, you know, the clinicians having a hard time trying to figure out where the problem is. So from our perspective as neurologists, when we're talking about the patients, what we like to do is localize the lesion, what we call the neurolocalization. And so that's a big part. Like that kind of, that's the first thing we do our exam and then we go, okay, where do we localize the patient? Because then combining where the patient's exam shows where the problem is, along with their sigma and history and kind of what's been going on that helps us come up with their differential. So you know, I'm going to defer back to academia. You know, we've got young interns that have just finished veterinary school. So if they're kind of struggling with where to localize the patient, then we can come in. And the purpose of that is so we can kind of get our own eyes on it and get a better idea. But then we can also teach the intern and show them what to do. So that way they can kind of better grasp. So in the next case they have, they feel a little bit more confident in performing their exam. I see. And this question seems obvious, but but I'm going to ask it anyway. <laughs> what are your primary responsibilities as an assistant professor? So on the clinical floor, it is obviously to oversee and run the clinical floor, making sure things go smoothly. Obviously, patient care is, is number one priority when we're seeing patients and, and covering clinics. And then it's also backing up our residents and 
educating them and helping teach them and grow as neurologists in training. And then we also have the responsibility of also teaching our students and making sure that they're getting an education and, and becoming more comfortable with neurology too. Again, I always tell the students the first day of the rotation, we kind of talk about what their goals are, what they want to get out of the two weeks that they spend with us. And, you know, I tell them my own goals for them. And it's kind of the same across the board as I just tell them my goal is to get them again, comfortable with doing a neurologic exam, because then once they're comfortable with that, they can get to their localization and work from there. And so those are kind of the, the big things. And then my other part of my appointment is research. And so I, I'm tenure track. So research actually takes up a fair bit of my duties here at, at the University of Illinois. What is your research area? Is it uh, epilepsy and spinal cord injury? Yeah, I've gotten really interested in neuroimaging and I feel pretty blessed because here we have um, some very, very brilliant bioengineers that are doing some pretty interesting and very novel techniques using magnetic resonance imaging. And so since they're here on campus, uh, again, it's very collegial. I can email them. I'm working with a couple of them right now on some projects. And they just get really excited to actually come down to vet med. And, and they're very supportive of, of seeing this technology translate over to veterinary medicine um, and, and seeing that applied. So we're working on a study with epileptic dogs where we're measuring, we're doing what's called magnetic resonance spectroscopy. And so what that essentially does kind of to break it down in the basics is it's a way there's specific metabolites that are found in the cells in the brain. So the neurons and astrocytes and the spectroscopy can actually measure those metabolites non-invasively. And so that's what we're trying to look at in these patients here. Uh, the interesting thing with this is it's actually, we can actually measure the whole brain. A lot of systems right now, you have to pick a specific area to measure those metabolites, but the technology to do this in the entire brain was actually developed here at the University of Illinois, and this is the only place it's available right now. So that's pretty cool stuff that we're doing. That's very cool. So I'm, I imagine I mean, you'll be publishing our, our, our paper on that. Or Hopefully. We're still in the process of getting cases recruited, but that is the plan. Any, any, any research project you do is to publish that data, you know, Hopefully we find some differences between these dogs with epilepsy and the healthy dogs. Um, but if not, then it also kind of just shows that, hey, maybe this isn't, isn't an ideal technique to use. I think it'll show something. How many uh, do you need in the study? How many patients? We're right now just currently working on a pilot study. So a pilot study is just a very kind of small, just again, to just get some data and see if the study is going to work. And so we have done imaging in five healthy dogs and we need five dogs with epilepsy. We've actually worked up two epileptic dogs right now, so we only need three more. And then if that shows something, then obviously I would love to expand to a, a bigger population uh, with any kind of study. Having more cases is always better to be a little bit more confident in your findings. Um, and so what would you say 40% of your time is not spent on research right now? About 50 my appointment's technically 60% scholarly activity, 40% clinics, but there's a, you know, when you're off clinics, I'm teaching still and, and, you know, doing some serving on committees and things like that. So I'd probably say like 45, 50%. Okay. Significant. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I guess one thought, one question I want to ask is, 
you've obviously worked with residents at the, the college um, or, or some of the residency programs. How or do you have any advice for residents that are going to be taking two boards next year? Any thoughts on that that you could share? Well, I will say that um, I know this year was really difficult for a lot of them. Unfortunately, their board exams were canceled due to COVID-19. So they, they did get pushed back a year. And so I feel for the residents out there that did not get the opportunity to sit their boards and now have to wait another year. But I don't want the year pushback to break you. And, and I know you're frustrated right now, uh, but I think we're going to get the ball rolling. And I would just say, you know, take what you learn. We're hoping to make, we hope the exam, what we're trying to do is gear it, that it becomes applicable to a clinically competent neurologist. And so, you know, historically the exam has been known to be a bit of a, a beast. Um, I can attest. I sat through it <laughs> and it is hard. I can't like lay into too much of it since I, it's been a while, but since I was on as being part of the rating committee, I actually got to see the exam. So I can't obviously make too many comments. Granted, that was a year ago. I haven't seen this year's, but. Okay. Well, thank you. Cause I know after speaking with a lot of residents, they're concerned about that. Um, and as they should be, it's a big change. So, yeah, and I think the, the, um, I can speak for myself personally when sitting boards is, I think it's hard to figure out what to focus on. Um, because going through your entire life in your education and through undergrad and even veterinary school to some degree, you kind of always had some idea of what to study. Uh, and when you get ready to study for your boards, you're like, oh my God, <laughs> I pretty much need to know everything there is about veterinary neurology. And so I, I think it can be, you know, for me, it was very overwhelming. because I'm like, I just don't even have a direction to go in at this point in time. Like what, what do I, what do I look at? What do I focus on? You know, what is going to be the best thing? It's like, I don't have time to read every single thing. You know, I would say, I think the guidelines are, are pretty self-explanatory. I know, you know, my, my mentors told me obviously focusing on the, there's research papers and, and articles that have come out. And I believe the, the past five years, I know the residents sitting next year, I will tell you that they are not going to pull any new literature for the test next year. Usually it goes up until like November of the year before. So if they were to rewrite the test this year, they would take literature up to November of 2020. They're only going to November of 2019. Um, so first of all, no, no new literature is what I've told. If that's wrong, do not yell at me, but that's what I was told. Uh, but, you know, kind of looking at that and then also those big groundbreaking papers. So there could be things that are a little bit older from like the 1980s, 90s or past and the big groundbreaking things. And so, and I tried to just, again, it's a lot. I tried to just read, at least if you run out of time, at least read through the abstracts because you're going to get a good breadth of potentially what could, the bulk of what that paper is about through those abstracts. Okay. That's terrific. I'm sure there are a lot of residents that are going to appreciate that, that insight and advice. So when I was introducing you to the podcast, and then after you describing your transition from private practice to academia, it, it seems that the most rewarding aspect of your career is the teaching. Yeah, I, I, I wasn't sure how that would go over, but I've, I've grown to, I think the difference too with anybody and, you know, even in private practice, there are private practices that have 
training programs as well. So they have interns and, and residents. And so I think the unique thing with veterinarians across the board, even in our referral partners, they might have junior colleagues coming on that also still need some training and, and teaching is we're not inherently trained to be educators per se. I did not get a, I did not go to school for teaching. Um, I went to school to become a veterinarian and then I did my postgraduate training to become, you know, a very clinically competent veterinary neurologist. And so nowhere in there was any kind of formal teaching training, like training and education. So I think you just kind of have to learn what works. Um, I try to, to, I mean, I don't try, I take feedback from the students, um, you know, to try to incorporate what they liked, what they didn't like, how can we change things? And that's from my lectures in the classroom to, you know, 130 veterinary students down to the clinical floor about the clinical rotation. You know, some of them said, oh, I really liked the the rounds in the morning, the topic rounds, but, you know, maybe we could try to do them in the afternoon because that seems a little bit easier for the workflow and things like that. So my colleague and I were kind of, we try to take their feedback very seriously because they, uh, they pay a good amount of money to get their education here. And so we do take their feedback and, and try to incorporate what they say to improve their learning experience. Even the same thing with my residents, you know, we had two, I had just had two, two third years finish in July. And then I'll have another third year who, who you've met and is quite lovely finishing in January. And we try to sit down with them and talk about with regard to there because they have rounds and, and teaching again to prepare them for the board exam and get feedback from them on not only the residency when they leave in general, but feedback on rounds. Hey, what did you like about this? I know, you know, one of my residents said she was really nervous about the neuropath section on the board exam. And so, you know, I sat with her about, well, what do you think, what would you like to see as far as rounds here or, or what we can do to make you feel a little bit more confident about that? So I, I was actually frantically when we were chatting with them, writing down notes to incorporate. And so I think, and then they feel heard, right? They feel like they're having a say also to, to help kind of guide their future. Yeah, it is. I think a lot of residents feel sometimes not valued and that makes me very sad um, when they don't feel valued. So that's where from my own personal experiences um, in training and then personal experiences with me training residents is I, over the course of time have learned, you know, to listen, but not only like, I feel like I have always listened, but then letting them know, Hey, I am listening to you. And it's not just going in one ear and out the other, but not only did I listen to you, but I heard you because I'm taking what you told me and trying to change things. So, I always I want my residents to be happy. I know the re the residency is not, you know, three years of <laughs> bliss and happiness. There's ups and downs, but I, my hope is that for the most part, the vast majority of their time here um, in their training program, they enjoy what they're doing and and they enjoy the environment that they're in.
That's a good question. <laughs> I think for me at first, it was even just the transition from private practice back to academia and that, that it does move at a slower pace. And that's not a, a bad thing necessarily, but we have to take these times to teach as well. We are a hospital, but we're also a teaching hospital. And so we have to make sure that we talk about the case with the student and that we talk about the case with the resident. And, you know, when I was in private practice, I did not have anesthesia also having to schedule in a horse or a cow, (laughs) you know, so, you know, things do go. And then again, anesthesia also has students that they're teaching. So, you know, it is a little bit slower of a process. Um, So that was kind of a thing that I'm like, why can't we do five MRs in a day? I don't understand this. (laughs) Uh, So trying to transition from that. And I think it's just getting my bearings back into teaching again, like in private practice, I, you know, the MR would pop up or the case would come in and I'd be like, or it would just even be come back walking. I'd be like, Oh, it's, it's a neck. And I sometimes still sometimes catch myself blurting out before I let like the resident or the student think about it. And I have one resident on my first year, one of my first year residents has learned that she runs away from me uh, when we're doing an MRI. She's like, I don't, I want to think, which is great. This is what she should be doing is because she's like, I don't want to, I don't want to talk about it right now. I want to go back. She like goes to a different room and we'll sit down and look at the MRI and then come find me. But yeah, she's like, I don't want to know. <laughs> so she just takes off. <laughs> That's but great. Probably, like, I just kind of, it's just like a, a brain lapse, but I think it's, again, I just get so excited. I'm like, whoa, look at that. And she's like, no, 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 no. <laughs> it's like telling somebody the end of a movie. Yeah. Yeah. I think the other, um, That's kind great. of where it was a bit where I had to kind of work a little bit harder is, is to get back in that. I honestly never saw myself as a, you know, clinician, scientist, or researcher. I think, again, I will say all veterinarians are to some extent a clinician scientist, um, but I never saw myself doing research or writing papers. And so kind of getting that thought process underway. And, and again, coming in neuro here at Illinois um, didn't exist from about 2002 until about 2012. And so my colleague, Dr. Devin Haig, came back and literally rebuilt the neuro service from the ground up. And so from that standpoint, her focus, and she is clinical track. So again, it kind of flip-flops. Most of her responsibility is, is on the clinic floor. But during from 2012 to 2016, before I started, that's what she was focused on is just building that service, getting, building the caseload, getting the word out that, hey, U of I has a neurology service again. Um, and then starting, she started with um, a specialty intern in 2013, who then stayed as our resident in 2016. And so that was her focus. And that's what she should have been doing. So then I came in and started from ground zero with building the research program. So, you know, there wasn't anyone here. She had done a little bit, but there wasn't anyone here already that I was coming into a program with an established research. Um, so I had to also work on, on building that. Um, I've been told I'm doing a good job. So <laughs> from colleagues, I very much respect, but you know, we, we are still in the, the new stages. I've only, you know, it's been four years since I've been here. Um, and now that it's like year three, four, I just keep spewing off these studies that I'm doing. And my husband's like, 
what? <laughs> How many do you have going on? <laughs> He's also a veterinarian, so. <laughs> so you've surprised yourself then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I just was like, okay, I can. I can I can do this. I can do this. Okay. And so your husband, is he a general practitioner or a specialist? He is um, a general practitioner. Is it a general mixed practice. Um, but now that we are back here, he spends most of his time with the large animal medicine service. So speaking, oh, speaking of okay. teaching though, he is thinking about going back and getting his master's in education, um, because his position is a, a little unique that he is on the, the food animal medicine service uh, for about six months out of the year. And then during the actual academic year, he, uh, teaches, he helps teach anatomy to the first year students. So he's another one that was like, I never thought I would be a teacher, but dang it all be the students love him. Not that, you know, I'm happy about that, but everybody I talked to like, Oh God, they just love your husband. Oh, that's great. And I think from from his perspective and theirs, uh, before we came here, you know, when we were out in Ohio and even when I was in my residency, he was out in mixed animal practice. So he was, he was literally in the trenches. He was out there doing what a lot of these students are going to be doing. So I think he's also, they can relate to him. And so they view him as someone who's approachable because I think sometimes they see these specialists and they're like, oh gosh, they do all this training. They're all really, really smart. And and so they couldn't be a little intimidated, but you know, he's been out there. He's seen it, done it. Um, so he can tell them what it's like out there. I've been, I, I will tell them, I, I tell him all the time, like I've been really, really sheltered. I went right from veterinary school to a rotating internship in a specialty hospital. So I had access to all the specialists. And then in my residency, again, a specialty hospital. And now I, when I finished, even in private practice, I was again in a specialty hospital with all the bells and whistles and then back in Illinois with all the bells and whistles. So I said, I've had a quote unquote, a bit of a sheltered life. Right. Right. And your private practice, I mean, MedVet's such an amazing hospital, an amazing group. They've just exploded and I, I'm so happy for the, the company in general. I, I like I I'm happy I tell the students too that I was like I came from the the OG practice, the one that started it all back in Worthington, Ohio. Mm-hmm. I think when I started mm-hmm. there were only four practices at that point in time. Yeah. I think now they're close or probably just over Yeah, 20. I don't even know. Um yeah I just enjoy I work with Medvet. I enjoy it immensely. Well uh, one more question any, I mean, you've given lots of advice and insights to younger doctors, residents, specialists, anything else that you could say? I think from other specialists, um, there's plenty of opportunities. So if you are feeling the need to try something different, there's a, there's a lot, even if it's not even in the specialty you're in, there's just so much to do out there. I was terrified to make the jump from private practice back to academia. Um, I'm so glad I did. So there's, there's a lot of opportunities out there, um, for the, the residents. You guys are the heart and soul of our specialty. Um, and, and we are excited to see more and more neurology as a, as a specialty has just boomed in general. You know, it's gone from a, a small group to just growing exponentially. And so we're all really excited to have you guys join our college and just take a deep breath. Again, I know this year has been frustrating for a lot of us, in particular, our residents that were working really hard um, and prepping for this exam and, and then we're not able to take it. But, you know, we, we want you guys to feel supported uh, by your mentors and by the, the college in general. So please 
reach out if there's any questions. And then I'd say for even my referral partners, um, you know, we're always here. Uh, I to, to answer questions and help guide you. And I think that the referral partners are such an integral role to the patient care uh, because they're the most familiar with the patient. We actually will treat them. And sometimes they, they a lot of times follow up with us, but then they will follow up with their family veterinarian as well and, and communicate back and forth. So I also could not do what I do without kind of all three years without the other specialists, without my residents, but then also without the referral partners that we have. So thank you. Um, and it sounds like you're exactly where you're supposed to be. <laughs> I mean, you sound really happy and fulfilled and excited and passionate about what you're doing. Yeah, I think I found, like you said, I found, I think, what I was meant to be doing with my career. Well, thank you. I'm thrilled to talk with you. And um, you've been generous and gracious with your time and um, and your advice. So um, I know lots of neurologists and other specialists are going to enjoy listening to it. Well, thank you for having me. It was fun. Thank you for listening to the latest episode of the Veterinary Career Services Podcast. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast to ensure you never miss an episode. For feedback, questions, discussion topic requests, or if there is anything we can do for you, feel free to contact us at laura at vetcareerservices.com. Stay tuned for the next episode of the Veterinary Career Services Podcast.